Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. He knew he was going to be seated at the right hand of his heavenly father. We too know our finish line. And it's not, I'm talking to myself here, having the beautifully decorated forever home I've always dreamed of. It's not my children accomplishing all the things I hoped they would. It's not becoming financially secure enough to be able to retire with ease. My and our finish line is him. We run, we persevere, and we endure the suffering of this life because he is worth it. Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of hope found in Jesus. I'm Robin, and I am here with Lindy and Katie, and we are your podcast hosts. Y'all, we're so excited to bring you another new story, our second week of season six. And this one actually came from a live gathering. And so again, if you're new here, we have live gatherings around the country that record stories and send them to us. And so that's what this one is today. So you're going to hear people laugh in the background. I think somewhere mm-hmm. you may hear a chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, it's real. It's real life live stories. This was recorded in Memphis, Tennessee. And you're going to hear Courtney's story. This is Courtney Humphreys. She is actually a friend of one of the girls on the team named Chansey, who also shared her story last year. A little background is that they went to college together. They went to Vanderbilt. You're going to hear through Courtney's story. She is clearly very bright, very driven, (laughs) very motivated. And I learned so much. I always love them when we get stories from our communities and Courtney's story is one that can resonate with, I believe, most anyone because we are so often trying to be good enough for God or we're comparing ourselves to others and wishing we were more like them and had the relationship they had with God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, her story is so good about this idea of really trying to stop the train of comparison and accepting not only the qualities and the gifts that God has given you, but celebrating the gifts that he's given others. It's a great story about community. So here's Courtney. And before Courtney's story, we are so excited about the feedback that we've been getting from When God Shows Up, Stories of Freedom. For those of you that have started uh, small groups around the country, we are so excited to walk with you and hear about how your small groups are going. One of the things that we have heard is that This Bible study creates immediate transparency because you're Mm -hmm. listening to someone be vulnerable about what's going on in their life and how God has showed up for them. And so it kind of opens the door for women to share what's going on with them and and be honest about it. Mm -hmm. And so if you haven't ordered your copy of When God Shows Up, Stories of Freedom, you can go to our website at storytellerslive.org. Here's Courtney. This is Courtney Humphreys, and before you hear my story that was recorded in May, I'd like to dedicate this episode in loving memory of Liza Fletcher, a member of the girl gang mentioned in my story. Liza was abducted while on a run in Memphis on Friday, September 2nd, and murdered, and we miss her desperately. While my relationship with running has shifted significantly because of this recent tragedy, the God of the universe, my Heavenly Father, full of steadfast love and mercy, and the source of every breath I take, has not changed one bit. Liza was many things, a believer in Jesus Christ, wife, mother, daughter, sister, teacher, friend, and also a runner. Our relationship was forged over many miles together, and I'm certainly not alone as one who experienced the gifts of close friendship with Liza. Her ever-attentive listening ear her kind and generous heart eager to serve others, her exuberance and vigor for every area of her life, and her gentle, humble spirit. 
I pray that anyone who listens to this story who doesn't yet know Christ will consider him. The God who Liza trusted with every ounce of her being and the God who sustains us as we wait until we see her again in glory. Here's my story. When I think back on myself as a child, I see a little girl who experienced a lot of fear. From what I remember and from what my family has shared with me, I came into this world very perfectionistic and very type A. I preferred order in every area of my life. I color-coded my toys. I didn't like to get messy. I craved control, and I did not like it when I didn't understand things. It's a bit of a family joke that at age four or five, I told my mom at bedtime that I was really worried about doing my taxes. (laughs) I must have heard my family talking about taxes and just figured I needed to add that to my list of things to worry about. I can understand now that throughout my childhood and into my early adult years, I was attempting to exert control over my environment. And this only worsened after my parents' divorce when I was in second grade. I barely spoke for an entire year. My stomach hurt all the time from worry. I clung to my mom. I refused to try new things. I even faked sick at a very young age because I didn't want to sing or participate in the end-of-year program at my preschool. Whether it was trying a new musical instrument or a sport, I just didn't think it was worth trying new things if I wasn't going to be excellent at them right away. When I first heard the gospel at summer camp at age eight or nine, I misconstrued the message to be that God would love me and accept me if I proved myself worthy of him. I came back from camp and I stood in front of the bathroom mirror and I committed to myself and to God that I was going to get it right. I was going to be perfect. I wouldn't fight with my sister. I was going to help my mom when she asked me. I was going to be right. Of course, inevitably, I failed quickly over and over again and then determined that I myself was a failure. And this was the roller coaster I rode for years, believing I could muster up the willpower to be good enough for God, then falling short and feeling woefully inadequate and unworthy of his love. As I got older, even as I made good grades, participated in extracurricular activities, and from most outsiders' perspectives appeared to be thriving, I felt a nagging emptiness that at that point I couldn't describe. I still worried a lot. I overstudied just to make sure I was ready for tests and exams, oftentimes making stacks and stacks of flashcards that would take over my bedroom. In high school, I watched my peers begin to apply to college and write college essays about their passions and interests and felt like I didn't even know what to write because I didn't really know myself. I had navigated my high school years as a massive performance. I only raised my hand in class if I knew I had the right answer. The questions I most feared answering were when a teacher asked me what I thought about something and there wasn't a clear right answer for me to provide. Ultimately, I was afraid of being flawed or incomplete. And I tried to cover that up with my efforts to be excellent in the areas where I felt most comfortable. At that point, I would have said I was a Christian. I was fairly familiar with the Bible. I knew God loved me, but I really felt like an imposter, a fraud. I worked as a recruiter for a Christian summer camp after college, and one of the interview questions we asked applicants was, how do you know you're a Christian? When I asked that question to young college students, I listened for the answers that I assumed people who actually had it more together than me spiritually should give, the real Christians without anything to hide. I listened for church activities, campus ministry participation, vacation Bible school volunteering. I took notes on all the evidence I thought it required to prove one's faith. I didn't know it at the time, but I was exhausted and weary, worn down from the roller coaster. 
the highs of riding on my own self-righteousness and the lows of plumbing the depths of my failure and unworthiness. As a young adult, after I moved back to Memphis, I participated in a small group Bible study on Genesis. And I will never forget the night that we were discussing Genesis 15, the passage when God cuts the covenant with Abraham, then Abram. I wasn't familiar with the story or the background information, but I learned that during covenant ratification ceremonies between two human beings, each party would cut animal pieces in half and pass between them as they stated the terms of the agreement, basically communicating, let this be done to us, let us be broken like these animals if we break the covenant. But when God cut or established the covenant with Abraham, God put him into a deep sleep and God alone passed through the animal pieces signifying that there would be no meeting in the middle. The penalty of violating the covenant rested on God alone, and Abraham had no end of the bargain to hold up. I was shaken by this reality, a picture of God's grace through Christ that I had never understood. And I was left wondering what it would mean to quit trying to hold up my end of the bargain with God. What if I laid down my burdens at his feet? What if I surrendered, quit trying to be good enough for him and rested in the fact that only he is enough? I don't have a single conversion moment I can point to, but during the years God was etching onto my heart the truths of his grace, I also became a runner. I'd run for fun in high school, in college, even trying out a couple of marathons and found that I really enjoyed it. The act of moving my body, being outside, and competing all were fun for me. In college, running provided a helpful reset when I felt stressed about schoolwork and some much-needed routine when the college rhythm felt slow and aimless. When I moved to Houston to start my first job and I knew very few people, running gave me a sense of stability when literally everything in my life felt new and I was learning how to be an actual adult. Even when traveling all over the country and staying in hotels as a college recruiter, I could always run. Running was how I found my footing. It gave me a sense of place and of home no matter where I was. When I recall those years in my life, running plays a major role. Whether it was the loop around campus in Nashville, Memorial Park in Houston, or small town highways and dirt roads in Arkansas, I look back and see that God was drawing me to himself and creating a way for me to know him in a more personal way than I thought was possible. Since those early years, God has used my journey as a runner to reveal his character to me and to bring me from a place of fear to a place of freedom as I learn to glorify him with the gifts he's given me. Hebrews 12.1 reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I've been studying Hebrews this semester with a group of women at my church, including my beloved ladies of Table One, and we very recently talked about these verses in Hebrews. And our teacher taught us that the command to run the race with perseverance is not just an individual command, it's a corporate one. All throughout Hebrews, actually, are commands that to my Western individualistic ear seem to be focused on individuals, when in fact they are corporate calls to unity and responsibility for each other. For so long, when living in a place of fear, I felt so alone. I thought I had to be everything, that I had to be good enough, and that I had to do it all by myself. How freeing it is to know that we are made for community. We cannot run this race alone. We need each other so desperately. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. 
He knew he was going to be seated at the right hand of his heavenly father. We too know our finish line. And it's not, I'm talking to myself here, having the beautifully decorated forever home I've always dreamed of. It's not my children accomplishing all the things I hoped they would. It's not becoming financially secure enough to be able to retire with ease. My and our finish line is him. We run, we persevere, and we endure the suffering of this life because he is worth it. My close friend buried her son this year, and she continues to endure because he is worth it. I witnessed another friend endure an arduous battle with cancer at a young age, choosing to cling to hope as her body fell apart because he is worth it. Another grapples with really difficult decisions and questions about one of her children because he is worth it. I look to my best friends and I see countless examples of endurance in the face of deep suffering. And instead of just being amazed by them, which I am because they're wonderful and I love them, I'm most amazed by God and the way he knits us together so we can hold each other up and point each other to him. Sometimes I do these wild running workouts that oftentimes on paper I don't think I can physically do on the track at the University of Memphis, usually early in the morning. I'm typically alone, and in the moments that my body is screaming and my legs are burning, and I don't know that I can do one more rep, I remember that God alone is my audience. He sees me. There's an app called Strava where a lot of athletes post their workouts, and I made a decision a number of years ago to stay off of it, and along with that, to get off other social media. I realized that when I was using Instagram specifically, I was seeing moments of my life through a filter, a filter of how other people would perceive them. I would even go so far as crafting captions in my mind as I was experiencing events in real life. Instead of simply enjoying a moment, sitting at the kitchen counter and making nature watercolor paintings with my daughter, I would jump to experiencing that moment through the eyes of other people and even how I should frame that moment for others so I would appear a certain way as the kind of mom who sits quietly with her child and paints, the kind of mom who can turn it all off and be present for her child, although ironically documenting it for others would seem to prove the opposite. For me, I think this is an example of what the writer of Hebrews meant when he wrote every weight and sin that so easily entangles. Social media, while not in and of itself a sin, had become a weight in my life that was hindering my ability to run the race with endurance. As my world has shrunk a bit through the choice to remove myself from social media, I have felt an increasing sense of freedom and a deepening recognition that God alone is my audience. For much of my life, I lived for an audience of many. I looked to others to give me validation and to see myself as worthy and definitely still struggle with that at times. When I have just crushed a running workout, letting it rip around the track and feel fully vibrant and alive in my body, not one other person needs to know about it. Those moments of communing with God alone and thanking him for a body that can run and do amazing things, it's so deeply soul-satisfying. God has shown me that there is deep joy and peace in seeking to run, not just physically run, but run the race of this life with a perspective of doing it for him and no one else. And when I run for him alone, the fear of not being good enough, the fear of how I'll measure up when I compare myself to others is replaced with freedom because no matter how I perform, I am his beloved daughter who's standing before him cannot change because of him, not because of me. This definitely doesn't mean I think everyone should get off social media. This has just been my experience, but it's taught me to be mindful of what is weighing me down and evaluate what might need to be laid aside so that I can run with more freedom. I have a group of friends, the girl gang, I run with often. We meet early on Saturday mornings in a parking lot, whether it's 30 degrees or 80, and whether there is rain, sleet, or blazing heat. 
like the post office, kind of. As we run, we cover a lot. We share what's going on in our lives and in our hearts. We share our struggles, and sometimes we laugh and cry as we go. I have discovered it is possible to cry big tears and run at the same time. It's just kind of messy. We race against each other sometimes, too, but the true gift is to cheer each other on and celebrate each other's accomplishments. Recently, part of the girl gang came to cheer me on as I was finishing a race. I saw them as I turned a corner near Crosstown, and I could hear them yelling as loudly as they could, and I felt so loved. What a picture that is of the life we get to live as believers. We get to cheer each other on and celebrate each other's gifts and accomplishments instead of being threatened by them. This past winter, I ran the St. Jude Marathon, and a friend ended up passing me at the end. She looked so strong while I was barely shuffling to the finish line. And then more recently, I finished ahead of her in a different race. After she finished and I congratulated her, she said, you make me better. That to me is a beautiful picture of community. God created us with different gifts, and instead of comparing myself and yearning to have the gifts that others have, I can with joy recognize that others' gifts make me better as they show me more of Jesus than I would see on my own. I've spent far too much time comparing myself to others. What they have, where they live, what their gifts are, what their children do or don't do, the list goes on. And I've sadly had more of a spirit of competition than of celebration when someone's gifts are different than mine. A dear friend was in my kitchen recently. I love to cook, and while none of it is particularly fancy, I do get a lot of joy from preparing food for my family. She was sitting in my kitchen as I bustled around, and she said, I love to watch your kitchen sing. That spirit and perspective is one of freedom, of recognition that if we all had the exact same gifts, we wouldn't have the picture of unity that Paul writes about in Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I've always loved the line from Chariots of Fire, a movie about Christian and Olympian runner Eric Little, where he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's the closest way I know how to describe what it feels like when I run. I truly feel that I'm doing something I was made to do. And as I do it, I am glorifying him. It's an embarrassing misconception I had for a long time, but I really believed that in order to glorify God with my gifts, that meant I had to be explicitly sharing the gospel while using that gift. I felt if I didn't have a tally of people I'd shared my testimony with, then I definitely wasn't glorifying him. Sharing the gospel certainly is crucial in a command of scripture, but my perspective was quite limited. I found that as I run, I glorify him because I'm learning to trust him more. I'm learning discipline and experiencing joy, because ultimately I'm not doing it for me. St. Augustine said, a Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. I think running gives me a small picture of what that looks like and feels like, and I hope to apply that same principle to the rest of my life. Being an alleluia from head to foot as I lead meetings at work, as I shuttle kids to their various activities, as I cook dinner, and all the other seemingly mundane tasks of my days. I love to listen to runners' podcasts, and I've found that a lot of runners have mantras, pocket phrases they say to themselves when they're feeling the physical pain in a race but have to keep going. One of the mantras I've found myself leaning on lately is, I get to do this. It's a choice to wake up incredibly early and run strides back and forth down midtown blocks, to fill up water bottles and get gels ready, to lay out my clothes and my shoes so I try not to wake anyone up early Saturday morning. Whenever I have a complaining spirit, my husband likes to remind me that no one's paying me to do this. (laughs) In fact, I'm paying for it. He's reminding me that I've made a choice, 
a choice to be disciplined and to prepare. I yearn to apply that same mindset to my walk with the Lord. Am I preparing each and every day to face the brokenness of this world and the temptations of the devil armed with scripture? Am I choosing each and every day to welcome discomfort, even rejection, for the sake of the gospel? Oftentimes, the answer is no. But I yearn to, as a friend says, citing Paul's encouragement to the Philippian church, make progress toward that no being a yes. With the recognition that my discipline and preparation are not to prove myself worthy, but instead a response to the radical grace I have received through Christ. A key ingredient in any successful runner's regimen is recovery. This was a new concept for me when I hired a running coach a few years ago, and she started putting rest days and recovery runs on my training calendar. Up until that point, I approached running like I approached much of life. I assumed the harder and further I went, the better. I always ran about the same pace, pushing it until I was a bit uncomfortable on every single run. But in running, I learned you can't run fast unless you run slow. And I've learned how to enjoy slowing down so it feels really easy. My heart rate, steady and slow, and then a couple of days a week not exercising at all. I used to get really antsy and even uncomfortable when I didn't exercise. I would think I was being lazy. But now I see it as an integral way to care for myself. COVID taught all of us a lot about rest, and I'm seeking to apply the same idea of slowing down to the rest of my life, even as the calendar has definitely filled back up. During COVID, I learned how to just sit outside with neighbors, our quarantine. Even though there were tasks not complete in our house, which was really hard for me, I realized that the constant drive to produce, to check things off, to do more, did not have to determine how I lived. I could decide to make different choices that prioritized people over tasks. Just because the list is always there, humming in the background of my mind, it doesn't mean I have to respond to it. I imagine any of you familiar with the Enneagram would have guessed by now that I'm an Enneagram 1. And while I definitely don't want to over-identify with an Enneagram number, I do find it a helpful tool to better understand my own motivations and how God has wired me. That same desire for things to be right from when I was little, it's definitely still there. It's just channeled at this point as a deep desire for justice and excellence. And I'm continuing to learn how to work for those things in this broken world in a healthy way. One of the most exhausting things about being an Enneagram One is that I see the holes in everything. My desire for things to be right means that I tend to always see first how things are wrong. Whether it's a practice in an organization or someone's approach to a problem on a committee I'm serving on, I see the holes all the time. And in the past, I would feel the need to fix it all, or at least try to. An aspect of the freedom I'm learning to experience is that I don't have to fix everything. Just because I see a problem doesn't mean it's mine to address. God is teaching me to be still and know that he is God. Psalm 46.10. It's an act of trust to not jump at every single problem I see and also a proper acknowledgement that I am not the one in control, nor the one with the answers. I'm seeking to learn to quiet the impulse I feel to act immediately, typically to shoot off an email or a text about my concern, and instead to wait for the Holy Spirit's prompting. This also means I'm free to not have an opinion on everything, and I'm free to not criticize everything I see is not good enough. My sister is a therapist, and she taught me the word limited to describe both ourselves and other people. And it helps me reframe my often hypercritical spirit to recognize my own limitations and the limitations of others. Sometimes, as I'm processing childhood pain and trauma, 
my therapist will ask me how I would talk to my younger self. I think about what I would tell that young Courtney, who was so anxious and fearful, and who still struggles with anxiety to this day. I have so much empathy for that little girl, and what I would tell her is this. You're so afraid of being incomplete, of not being enough, but guess what? It's true. You are incomplete because made, God made you that way so you would need him. And he's right here, ready to welcome you into his arms. And he is perfectly complete and perfectly enough. And you belong to him, beloved daughter of the king. I look at my own children and see so much of myself in them. I can't shield them from pain and suffering. And I cannot promise them bad things won't happen to them. In fact, it's a certainty that they will. My husband and I yearn to parent our children in a way that displays that freedom of walking with Jesus. It doesn't mean there aren't things to be afraid of, but it means he will be with us through them. He will never leave us or forsake us. And he gives us specific gifts that enable us to encourage others along the way and draw them into the glorious mystery of the gospel. My 10-year-old who loves soccer and is dead set on being a professional soccer player, I yearn for him to play soccer for God's glory, running up and down that field and giving his all with joy. My eight-year-old's love for art and all things creative, my six-year-old's spunk and humor, I yearn for those to be directed towards glorifying God with the freedom that only he offers. Right before I left for the marathon this past December, I waited outside for my ride with my older daughter. I'd done all the very strange things that you do before a marathon, taken in a crazy amount of fluids and carbs over the days leading up. I had my bottles and my gels. I was physically ready. She asked if she could pray for me, and in her precious little voice, with her hands holding mine, she prayed that I would be confident and brave, and that no matter what happened, I would be proud. It was then that I felt truly ready, mind, soul, and body. My story isn't one that wraps up neatly at the end. If anything, my journey has me continuing to recognize more and more how broken I am and what a miracle it is that God has redeemed me. I'll close with a few verses from a favorite hymn that may be familiar. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, which so beautifully summarizes God's work in my life. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready waits to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Thank you. You know, in the past few weeks, obviously we've been talking about rest, and we've been talking about how God has shown up in incredible ways on our behalf when we rest and stop striving and working so hard. And this story is one of those. We did a survey this summer for you all. We asked you what you wanted to hear, what kind of stories you wanted. And one of the requests was just a quote unquote everyday story. You want to hear women who live the life you live. And y'all, Courtney's story was actually recorded last May, but we were done with the podcast mm -hmm. episodes. We had already finished for the season. And so we saved her story till this fall. And it's a perfect example of God providing because I think all of us can relate in 1,000 ways 
to to Courtney's life mm-hmm. and her story of of performance and trying to get it right and be the good Christian and be good for God. Mm-hmm. Can we not all relate to this story? Even if, like me, I can't relate to how Courtney is wired. Y'all know I'm not a type A, <laughs> I'm like type F. But, but I still, even though I can't relate to how she's wired, I can still relate to the comparison, the yeah. trap of comparison, mm-hmm, right. and not feeling worthy of the good gift that God gives mm-hmm. us in the, with the gospel. Mm-hmm. I know one of the things that stood out to me was just this whole idea of wanting to control everything. Mm -hmm. And if she couldn't control it, then she didn't want to be a part of it. I mean, I think there's one part at the very beginning, which how interesting it was that how God wired her in some ways, because she, what was she, four or five years old? And she was thinking about her taxes. You know, she she was a warrior. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But just how she recognized, you know, looking back all of these years that, that she thought that she was in control of things. And she obviously, God showed her that. I thought it was so precious the story that that God revealed to her in the book of Genesis, which that's a very deep, right. you know, for her to to see that because that's something that so many of us reading the book of Genesis could skim over. You know, oh, God signed a covenant with Abraham, but he actually carried all of the weight of that covenant. How yeah. sweet is our God Absolutely. that He carries that, you know, for us and um, and the reminders that she gave us throughout her story that He carries us and and gives us certain gifts. The other thing that really just spoke to me was the celebration of each other's gifts. Yes. You know, the as girl women, gang. Yeah, yes. the girl gang. I mean, as women, wow, we just compare ourselves to each other. And and we get so down on ourselves because we're not as good as somebody mm-hmm. in a certain area. We don't have this gift. I love the idea of just celebrating what God has gifted each one of us. I love that too. And when she talked about the girl gang, I found myself <laughs> asking, do I do that? Do I cheer my friends on? Right. Do I look at other women? and applaud what they're doing and not compare it to what I'm doing or not yeah. doing. I, I thought that was pretty, pretty insightful. Right. One of the things that challenged me is the comparison, mm-hmm. because I think, I think I would say, you know, I don't really compare myself that much. That's not a real struggle I have. Cole, I mean, uh, my and, then, and then the Holy Spirit revealed right, <laughs> my counselor and Holy Spirit would look at me with four eyes bugging out of their yeah. head. Uh, because when she described getting off of social media as God alone is her audience. And so she got off social media to know that she does not perform for the world. Mm. I mean, I've been sitting on this yeah. for days mm-hmm. since I listened to this story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what a message for our daughters. Yeah. Right. Certainly for us. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh. But also well, for our daughters. Well, I mean, as you can see, there is so many aspects of her story that we could go on and on about. And so one of the things that we are now offering on Patreon is a continue the conversation uh, podcast. So basically what will happen is the three of us are just going to continue talking about how God spoke to each one of us through Courtney's story. We're going to talk about the Enneagram just a little bit. We're going to talk, <laughs> we're going to talk about Hebrews 12. We're going to talk about Ephesians 4, 1. And we're going to talk about this idea of what Robin just brought up, you know, social media and maybe how it's affecting each one of us and what God might call each one of us to do. And I think Lindy has a pretty funny story for us <laughs> over I, on Patreon. I was in a running group called the Honeybees. Oh, I can't wait I to hear it. About. I can't wait to hear it. We're, so we're going to continue that conversation. This is actually going to air tomorrow. And hey, guys, we are now in that season, the month before our 200th episode, where we are giving all of the content that is found on Patreon to everyone who listens. So look for the Continue the Conversation in your podcast feed tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that you are loving season six as we wrap up the second story that God is speaking to you 
in brand new ways that you're challenged, that you're encouraged, and ultimately that you're finding hope in Jesus. So thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week. Bye.